Welcome to Nesta's Future Curious podcast with me, Nigel Campbell. Together, we aim to stimulate the parts other podcasts can't reach with ideas, provocations and glimpses into our future and explore how we can shift whole systems in a new direction and maybe shape brilliant ideas into practical solutions. Here's an exciting prospect for the future. What about a future without exams? Yes, I can tell you're nodding at that. <laughs> it sounds great, doesn't it? Well, young people should be leaving school with much more than just grades. So today we're talking about how we prepare them for a very different world of work and how to thrive and have the right skills for an era where robots might be doing lots of the jobs we currently take for granted. Today we're speaking to Tom Ravenscroft, founder and CEO of Enabling Enterprise. Tom founded the Enabling Enterprise operation in 2009 whilst teaching business and enterprise in a secondary school in Hackney. And we're also joined uh, by Joycey John, who's Director of Education at Nesta. Tom, Joycey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, Joycey, let's just talk first of all about the future skills and the kinds of skills that we should uh, be equipping our students in our education system to have? So the skills that are going to be high in demand in the future are the ones that are not going to be replaced by a machine or a robot. So things like creativity, collaboration, social and emotional skills. And given the trends that you mentioned, things that are impacting the world today, we know we don't know what's going to happen in the future. The world is highly uncertain. The one thing that we do know is that the only constant is change. So how are we equipping our young people to adapt to this rapidly changing world? We believe that education should support young people to acquire a broad set of skills, knowledge, and capabilities. It's not a conversation about knowledge versus skills. I think this is a false dichotomy. We need to be building a broad range of knowledge, but alongside we should build these skills, so-called future skills. But these are the skills that were important a few years ago. They are important now and they will be important in the many years to come because these are the skills that cannot be automated away. So um, has our education system been in a, a state of kind of stasis for, for, for too long? Is it, is it looking backwards rather than forwards? And, and I mean, a lot of people have relied on it. It's, it's very measurable. People look at those, uh, those league tables and those scores and, and that's how they navigate in lots of ways through it. Is that such a, a bad thing, do we think? Tom, what's your, what's your thoughts on it? Well, I think it's a really interesting question. I think the, um, I think the key thing for me is that we have a lot of certainty when it comes to knowledge about how do we capture it, how do we assess it, how do we prove it. Um, I think interestingly, perhaps we uh, put too much emphasis on the reliability of some of those measures. I think there's plenty of teachers out there who'd say that some of the grades they see their students coming back with aren't necessarily consistent with what their expectations would be. Um, but I think we feel like we've got that bit of the puzzle complete. But I completely agree with Joycey. I think it's you know one of three things that the education system should be equipping young people with. Um, and I think a second of those has to be skills. And I think actually we're a long way from being able to think about skills with the same rigour we apply to knowledge at the moment in that system. Right. I mean, we're, we're talking about students like they're all one amorphous kind of uh, mass. But of course, there's so many different personalities and aptitudes and learning styles and things like that. Uh, so um, is our system adequately geared to taking account of 
that now? And should it be more geared towards those different sort of aptitudes? Do you think, Joycey? I think the current education system hasn't really caught on with the fourth industrial revolution. So we've done it very well for the previous generation, where we wanted to train people en masse. We wanted everyone to follow orders and come out the same way. So there was a steady flow of input and output. But the world that we live in today doesn't need everyone to behave the same. It requires people with creativity and the education system needs to cater to this individual. It's not about just getting the average uh, to perform well in an exam. So I, th- I do think that the education system needs to change so that it can really personalize learning for many Now, personalised learning sounds great, but it's actually incredibly difficult and probably expensive to deliver. And there will be some shining examples of schools around the country where, you know, they have wonderful teacher to pupil ratios and they're able to kind of nuance their education for for them. Fabulous. But, you know, we have a a, a mass system uh, and that's going to be quite challenging, isn't it? Have you had any thoughts about how we go about making that uh, an individualized system because it it sounds tricky to me and i'm just a you know i don't i'm no expert whatsoever but it sounds expensive and tricky i think there is a solution technology can make things cheaper faster better uh, if you think about moocs massively open online courses thousands of people sign up from it all around the world all you need is an internet connection and a motivation and a desire to learn and you could have access to the best experts from around the world. So it is possible. It's not just about a very small class or you know, reducing the ratios. It's about how do you use technology in a smart way? So you are helping personalize the learning for the individual, catering to their needs, guiding them on their interests and their passions and connecting them to their next step. Tom, uh, I mentioned earlier on about Enabling Enterprise, and that's the organisation you run. Just tell us about how you go about uh, equipping young people with these uh, better experiences and more rounded things which grow other parts of their personality. Yeah, absolutely. So what we do at Enabling Enterprise is we uh, believe passionately that actually every student should have the chance to build um, what we call a, what we call essential skills, you could equally well call future skills, um, to a really high level of competence because we see those as being on a par with knowledge in terms of uh, opening opportunities for the future. Um, the way that we do that is by really trying to think about how would you build the eight skills that we look at, which include teamwork, leadership, problem solving, creativity, uh, as well as... Um, Uh, as well as interpersonal creative skills. Um, How do you build those to a really high level of competence? And how do you do it in a way that uh, sets a really high expectation that actually every student has to be able to achieve a certain level of competence in order to thrive in the rest of their lives? Um, And the way that we do that is we work with schools, about 480 schools at the moment, and we help them work with children from the age of three right through to 18-year-olds, making step-by-step of incremental progress in terms of building those skills. And I think for me, there's a real, a really interesting irony that actually one of the things to be able to personalise that for individual students and for, uh, for helping them to make progress is actually there has to be something of a consistency and a shared understanding of what those skills really mean and how you break those down. Because otherwise you can't actually adapt those skills and how they're taught to the individual because you need the different experiences they're getting to link up to those skills in a consistent way. 
So what's getting in the way of us? It all sounds fantastic. So what's getting in the way of, of, of this? What's inhibiting this uh, revolution in education? Is it that politicians are, you know, meddling with it? Is it that teachers are still not quite grasping it and, and, and embracing it? Is it parents that, that aren't comfortable? Where do you think we have to change hearts and minds here? Well, I mean, for me, when I think about, you know, getting future skills to be a, a key part of learning, I think there's a couple of challenges. I mean, I think one thing is that certainly for parents, their, uh, their expectations of education are whatever education they had themselves, right? So there's always going to be some sort of lag of expectation. So there's definitely a big piece to be done around uh, actually helping parents to understand the role of these skills and how they can support but actually all the work we've done has seen that parents really are very keen they want to uh, to support they want to understand more about it um i think the the second part of though the, what what's sort of holding things back is i think for that for too long uh, the skills that we've been talking about, those future skills are often seen as being woolly or slightly hazy or slightly intangible. Sometimes, you know, the term soft skills is used for them, which sort of captures all of that, right? Um, and for teachers, often they've had no training at all about how you'd actually build those skills in a meaningful way. And so what we end up doing is sort of falling back on on doing activities that use those skills, but not actually teaching them really thoroughly. So I think there's a huge leap that we need to be making in terms of uh, both how we position those skills and the centrality that they have to a good education, but also not underestimating um, how much work has to be done in order to build teacher confidence and to equip teachers with the tools to be building those skills as well. I agree. I think there, there are two ways of looking at it. One is, should these skills be taught in a standalone fashion or should they be embedded within the curriculum? And there is an argument that it has to be embedded. It's not just standalone uh, because everything that you do once you leave school requires these skills. So, you know, we are sort of setting up a false divide if we were to just teach them in a standalone way. The second thing is the accountability system and what we measure is what is get what gets treasured by parents, by schools and by teachers. So if you have a system where there is a lot of emphasis placed on league tables and exam results, where do you have the time, the capacity to build these skills? And I think the the final point is really around teacher capacity and giving them the tools and resources so they have the confidence to build these skills. Mm. We're very used to a, that kind of numerical, almost binary way of measuring how um, education has impacted on someone, you know, whether you can learn all this stuff and then regurgitate it in an exam. And I'm just wondering, we talk a lot on this podcast about AI, artificial intelligence seems to be like the pervading theme of everything we do. But it does occur to me that maybe artificial intelligence could help uh, test or um, evaluate people's softer skills that we're talking about here you know those those uh, those things we've been mentioning um, it could be could it be useful if we're doing something like that rather than taking an exam so you could actually measure the impact maybe of, of introducing this because I, I might be talking right off the top of my hat there but it, it's already happening in fact a lot of businesses now uh, are, using AI to recruit the right candidates. So these softer skills that you can't assess based on exam results can be assessed by how you respond, how you look at somebody, how you um, act or behave. And I think given that facial recognition, speech recognition, predicting 
how you're going to behave based on some of the other data points. That technology exists today and businesses are using it. It's just that we are not using it within the schools to help young people build those skills. Mm, I think it's interesting. I think uh, I think I think there's a lot in that. I think one of the 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 dangerous traps sometimes though that we slip into with skills is thinking uh, that it's all about it's not just about assessing those skills um, because I think if we and I'm not suggesting Joyce to say this but there's a there's a risk that we think that we invest the energy in how do you assess skills but then what we're really presupposing is either that they're innate, in which case it's just about trying to uncover them in, in somebody, um, or that we don't really know how they're built. And actually, the work that we've been doing and, and with partners as part of the Skills Builder Partnership is, you know, partly is about understanding, you know, how skills are built so that they can be assessed so we can understand where students are. But the critical point of that is it's not to give them a score in time for the sake of having a score. It's about uh, uncovering uh, where their strengths are at the moment, what they haven't covered yet, with the with the goal that they can then fill in some of those gaps and make the next steps forward. So I think that's a critical piece as well. I think AI might, as far as I can see so far, I think AI has been good at starting to uncover some of those skills where they exist at the moment. But the critical thing is how do you codify, how do you make progress forwards, uh, not just assessing where you are at the moment? I absolutely agree with you, and it has to be how do you build it, how do you measure it, and then how do you assess it? So in terms of how you build it, uh, AI could help there because by giving direct feedback to a student, you are more likely to help them build the skills that they lack. Um, so it's not just using AI to measure and assess, it's how do you help them build. Um, the other thing is how do you make sure that people are not afraid of this technology. There is a lot of fear that if there is a system that is constantly listening to you, recording you, then is it going to be this big brother that is going to turn against you? So I think we need to um, try and use technology and really maximize the benefits and reduce the risks. Fascinating. Well, uh, we'll come back to that in a, in a minute. We've heard some very interesting perspectives on education from uh, some, the adults in the room. Uh, but uh, I think it's high time we heard from a young person. So um, earlier I spoke to Zarina, who's a 17-year-old student, has been on an extracurricular course with an organisation called DebateMate, uh, which teaches debate exclusively in schools uh, with an above average free school meals rate. Uh, the organisation seeks to tackle educational disadvantage through debating. One of the things that I always lacked was the ability to uh, reason, which seems a bit weird, but I would I would get into arguments with people and I would just really struggle to be able to hold my own without kind of getting frustrated and um, not being able to kind of rationalise both sides of the argument. And one of the things that debate, debating in Year 7 specifically helped me to do is build up that confidence to hold my own in an argument, but crucially to use logic in doing so. And that's had massive benefits for me since then. The first time I really felt its effect, well, it was almost instantly. I remember I had just gotten into an argument at, at school over um, someone pushing into the line. And I remember just telling them um, with three reasons why they were wrong. I felt weird doing that because usually the way that you talk to other people is get out of the way, maybe a bit of swearing. But I was just I, I just thought to myself, wow, I, I'm really learning to to structure everything that I do 
And it allowed me to think of multiple reasons why that person pushed in. The way that my thinking processes changed completely, even in a normal situation, which you wouldn't consider to be an academic one, was kind of shocking to me in a good way. One of the things about debating, uh, which is possibly unique to debating, is that you are, in a competitive sense, supporting a side which you might disagree with wholeheartedly. So you don't have to choose which side you support. One of the things that's ma- that makes you do is, firstly, it makes you be passionate sometimes for something which you did not support. But I think it also makes you be neutral about all arguments because all arguments are things which you could have to support. And therefore, there is no one argument which you can kind of um, be emotionally invested into. I absolutely felt the effects academically, especially in written subjects. The ability to be able to cross-examine arguments, but also to know what the other side is, is an important skill in most subjects. So in English, I was able to uh, analyse more poetry and more text uh, in a very deeper way because I was able to understand that there was always another side or there was always an alternative uh, way in which you can look at what was in front of you and in things like history and politics knowing that there is no one correct answer allowed me to firstly eloquently in, in a structured way put across my view but also to know what the counter view is. I always knew I wanted to be a mentor because especially in year seven in that first year the mentor I had really really changed the way I thought about things and thought about arguments and I would go as far as to say to some extent they changed my life so I knew that there was something I really wanted to do you go in and you deliver lessons to the kids and they honestly are so receptive and they love it so much because it's something different for them for example, I worked, I worked with a child called Zuzana. She was very, very, very shy. She didn't even want to say um, when we had, so we played a game where you had to talk for one minute without using filler words such as arm um and uh, and she didn't even want to talk for 10 seconds because she was afraid that she wouldn't be able to do it. And now I'm going in and she's the one who will be leading the debate. She'll be telling people how you debate and she's just, the the biggest pleasure to work with she knows exactly what she's saying and she's so confident and most importantly she walks in every time with a smile on her face I think that it's really really important that they have these skills and I'm not the only one as well one of the things that debate mate does is it works with top firms such as Goldman Sachs to teach their graduates how to speak properly to teach their graduates how to consider arguments which shows that you can go through an entire uh, top, you know, university education and still lack a skill set which you need and which is vital to working um, anywhere, really. And so knowing that we've gone one step to helping these children to be successful, and especially when comparing them to peers who might have more advantages, because debate explicit, like, expressly works with schools in areas of high child deprivation so knowing that we've given that, them that advantage which other peers might have even if they end up going to Oxbridge or get all A stars is a really special thing and it aids social mobility enormously. If you're trying to improve social mobility going into areas where people don't feel as though they can progress further 
and that might be reflected on their children. But I think, on the other hand, it is a uniquely special thing because it's a skill which across the board people tend to lack, regardless of how rich uh, they are. I would say that especially when they when children learn these skills from debate mate and they are sent off, for example, to debate against the top private schools, you really do notice children becoming more confident, I, even myself, because you're able to hold your own and, and often beat children who whose parents have spent thousands of pounds of their education who generally tend to think that it's going to be easy to beat you because you don't have as much money as them and you are just as articulate and you're just as reasoned. And I think showing that intelligence, reason and the ability to put forward an argument is not something unique to how much money you have is a really important thing. I think that the way that the education system works, especially as you progress to secondary and then sixth form education, is you are working towards the exam you will sit. That ranges from things like being asked to read examiner's reports to not studying certain topics which are on your syllabus because they have a low probability of actually coming up in the exam. Everything you do and everything you learn is done with the express purpose of preparing you for that one exam you will sit. And so if something like debating or anything else is not on that exam, you're not going to learn it and no school's going to invest money in it. I'm currently one of uh, five school children on the England World Schools debating team. Uh, we are going to Sri Lanka uh, in the summer to represent England Thousands of people usually apply for each country and five students are selected. And it's historically something which has been dominated by the top private schools. So I'm happy that I'm the only student from a non-selective um, state school to be on the team. Um, and I'm the only student, by definition, who meets the debate make criteria for schools on the team. Well, that was 17-year-old Zarina, what, what an impressive young person. That was just <laughs> in, incredible. So we heard Zarina there talking about logic, about confidence, about thinking processes. Are these the kinds of things? How, how do young people change in your experience when they get exposed to some of these new ways of uh, interacting and thinking? Well, I think I think as um, you know, as we're hearing, it can be utterly transformational, right? Um, and I think the, the reason why these skills are so important and actually why we've ended up working with children from as young as three years old is because they're not just skills about employability. Actually, as we were hearing in that clip, it's all about how do you interact in all aspects of your life. Uh, and so when we're working with three and four year olds, you know, and early teamwork is just about, say, taking it in turns. Actually, that's not just about, you know, employability and their futures beyond school. It's actually about how do you make the most of their precious time in school and their precious childhoods and, you know, building their social skills. So they've got friends and that they feel comfortable in their lives. Um, and I think that that clip just illustrated that beautifully. Does it have lots of spin-off benefits sort of psychologically then, I guess? Absolutely. Can you imagine uh, a person who doesn't have the same opportunities as her richer peers is representing England in an intervarsity debating competition in Sri Lanka. I think that's fantastic. So, you know, building these skills that give you confidence, that give you the ability to think logically, reason, question, debate, they not only boost your confidence, they give you a whole new way of looking at things. In fact, especially in this world of fake news, it gives you the critical thinking skills that you need to be able to question 
the facts or the so-called facts that are presented to you. I bet uh, Twitter would be a nicer place if everyone learned those debating <laughs> skills, wouldn't it? <laughs> Joycey, um, let's talk a little bit about this, um, what's called in, in the trade, I understand, the rigid accountability problem, which sounds a scary phrase, but it's it's really about um, this measuring schools and this whole, whole uh, ecosystem um, of schools and teachers judged on test results and all that sort of thing. Um, and the whole Ofsted stuff and the culture of, in fact, uh, testing teachers as much as testing students. Um, do, we, do we just get rid of that totally or is it a way of evolving? Is it a question of evolving that? I think it's a question of evolving it. So if you look at the current system, there are huge implications. Uh, at a social level, it sort of tells people that they're not good enough, even though we all know that we have a brain that if you have the right growth mindset, you could be learning things. Um, I think it also impacts teachers because they get stressed. They transfer that stress to young people. In fact, there are uh, some schools that really teach to the test and they narrow the focus or narrow the curriculum to boost test results. Some schools even expel students who are likely to get poor results. So the increase in kids who are not in education or employment increases because of this rigid system that we have. So if there was a way to improve it, because I do think that there has to be a way for schools to measure the impact that they're making on young people. How are they improving their ability to learn, their ability to do well in life and in work? So there has to be some sort of a measurement, but I think it has to be a mixed method rather than just a pure focus on exam results. So a mixed method, how, what might that look like, do you think, Tom? Well, I, I think um, to build off of Joyce's point first, I guess, is that I think what you see in our schools and with the accountability system we've got is that um, the grade becomes the end to itself. And I think what we've forgotten is that the grade is meant to be a representation of a, a young person having a certain uh, area of knowledge. So it's meant to be representative of either some knowledge or some competency. And I think what we've forgotten is that that's meant to be a, a test of that rather than the end in itself. Um, but in terms of how do you how do you build off that? I think it's all about, uh, I think, firstly, perhaps measuring more things, because I think what we're doing at the moment is actually we're measuring a very limited number of things and what that means is that as you limit and limit the number of things you're you're focusing on actually the weight of those things becomes disproportionate so you don't have a balanced scorecard of what uh, a young person's experience at school has been instead you've got a very small number of grades and even that is aggregated up into you know say something like the progress eight measure where it becomes a single number um so actually, I think having that more balanced scorecard approach is, would be a really healthy thing. Uh, if I was to um, be able to influence that, one of the key things I would have is um, students building up this broader portfolio of how they're developing their essential skills um, to, again, not to have that grade, because I think that would really uh, ruin the incentives around it, um, but actually that they're building up this balanced portfolio and essentially driving themselves to fill in the gaps in their skill set. Um, and I think that would be a start to a healthier, more rounded view of what that young person had achieved um, and therefore what uh, what might be good as next steps for them rather than just that reductive single grade. Are the models 
in entire education systems that are doing it well if we look around the world uh, who's who's doing it brilliantly is anyone doing it brilliantly or I, th- i think there are some really good examples but it's not about copying because i think context matters so if you think about finland which is always a poster child for great education uh, then you have singapore they are uh, again come up in the top rankings for all the oecd and pisa rankings uh, but the the context does matter so i think one thing we can learn from them is having a broader education giving schools more freedom to cater to the needs of the kids that are there in the local uh, environment so it's not just copying something on mass i do think that it's about building these capabilities not just in the learners but also in the teachers because the outcomes that you are going to get in an education system is going to depend heavily on the quality of the teachers and if you look at our education system now i think 50% of teachers leave within the first 5 years of starting to teach so th- there's huge teacher workload teachers themselves are having challenges in terms of stress anxiety their own resilience levels so you know there's no shock when we hear that one in eight kids today suffer from mental health challenges so how do we change the exams so that a it's changes what you're measuring but also how you're measuring wow so it sounds like an enormous job that we've got on our hands here as a nation to change all of those things so where do we start what, what just to finish off with here ironically where do we start so what would be your first steps if you uh, were to uh, get to the keys to number 10 or 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 department of education i don't know whether everyone wants the keys to number 10 at the moment <laughs> <laughs> and where where would you where, where where would you wave your magic wand first i think for me it's really about using exams um in a way such that you help the learner and you help the teacher so it's much more about formative assessment where you're guiding the learning process the second thing is about using technology in a way that it reduces teacher workload and it helps young people build on their strengths uh, in a very constructive and consistent manner so if there was a way to make better use of technology i think that's where i would start but it mean it's not just about getting technology into the classroom it's about building the capability so teachers use it well and learners use it as well what would be your first step tom so i guess the big thing for me is uh the piece of work that enabling enterprise leading at the moment which is called the skills builder partnership which is essentially bringing together employers educators uh, and other skills building organizations about 700 organizations in all around a shared language and common set of outcomes for this set of essential skills um for me the big thing is that you can only build skills rigorously and have them taken seriously alongside knowledge if actually we all know what we're talking about and we all have something common that all of our different efforts can um can lead towards so yeah so definitely the keys to to number 10 would be a shortcut to some of that hard work I'll take it <laughs> <laughs> so are we feeling optimistic we like to feel optimistic at the end of these programs are, are we feeling optimistic on a scale of 1 to 10 what do you think the next generation are you optimistic for them in terms of education and preparation for the new challenges of the 21st century Absolutely I feel very optimistic because we do have the ability to change how we measure and what we measure so yes I am feeling very optimistic all of the data that we've seen from you know we worked with about 120,000 children and young people last year was that actually 
children and young people have a massively higher uh, capacity to build these skills than I think often we anticipate they do. And actually, if we were to take the same sort of rigorous approach to building these skills as anything else, there's no question in my mind at all that actually we could unleash a whole wave of new uh, potential. And I think that's tremendously exciting. I think the only thing is let's not create a league table for these softer skills. <laughs> <laughs> let's not go down that Thank road you. again. <laughs> I think we're all agreed on that. Thanks for listening to Future Curious. If you liked what you heard, please do share the podcast and rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us grow our audience. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or visit nesta.org.uk forward slash futurecurious to find out more and check out the other episodes in the series. Thank you and stay curious. Future Curious is a Chalk and Blade production. The producers were Ruth Barnes, Laura Sheeter, and Lily Ames. Original music is by Jed Flood. 